Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So, we left off, nope, making noise with the computer. We left off talking about the law of superposition and a little bit about stratigraphy and our uh, in-class activity thing we'll be dealing with stratigraphy and something called Harris matrices, which I will introduce to you. Um, we can categorize excavation in a couple different ways. The primary division is vertical versus horizontal. Um, both have different goals. Vertical excavation is exactly what it sounds. is when you're trying to get down usually as deeply as possible and you're not trying to make a big hole, but you're trying to make a deep hole. Um, this is largely to understand chronological relationships. We're looking for chronological relationships. Sometimes they call these phone booths. A vertical excavation is usually, if we're looking from the side, and here's the ground surface, they are as deep as you can get safely, and they're usually maybe one meter or two meters wide, so they're not very big, and they'll go down couple of meters. It depends on the soil. If it's sand or something that's unstable, you wouldn't go down very far. You might have to do steps where you excavate a larger bit and then you dig down deeper just so it's safe. But for the most part, what we're going for is that stratigraphy that you're going to be able to see in the pit on the side here. That's what we want to see. Um, this is trying to get the chronological information out of the ground. Um, which layers we're dealing with. Um, and sometimes you'll do this before you do a horizontal excavation, which I'll come to in a minute, um, so that you have an idea of what's coming up, so you have an idea to look for, oh, after this yellow layer of clay, we expect to see um, a dark brown layer of sand. So keep an eye out for that. So this can be a kind of way of probing ahead of where you're going. Um, but yeah, that's vertical. Vertical excavation, as deep as you can. Some, I think I mentioned they call them phone booths sometimes. And remember, this is not absolute age. Absolute age is like, oh, this is 1930. It's not that sort of information. It's this is older than that. And that is older than this. It's relative. Called relative dating, which I guess out of context would sound kind of incestuous. But that's not what relative dating is. We're going to get to dating. Um, I think next time we'll start on dating, right? Hooray. That's a fun segment. OK. Horizontal excavation. Horizontal excavation is not as deep, usually, and it's a much wider excavation. So we're looking at horizontal extent, and this is usually looking at one layer of time at a time. Does that make sense? One layer of chronology or one layer of history at a time in broad spatial context. So you'll excavate the whole thing. So let's say um, I'll just make up a site here where we have different layers, and each one of these is an old surface of the earth, and on one we have you know, um, the foundations of a building, 
and a trash pit that they dug and all these things. In a vertical excavation, you might dig a pit that goes straight down through all these and you might miss them. In a horizontal excavation, you're going to take up this whole layer. That whole, usually, often you'll take it up uh, one stratigraphic layer at a time, one strat at a time. And so you'll take all that off and completely expose the old ground surface all at once. And then you can look at it and get an idea of the spatial relationship um, of what's going on in that location. Test pits are vertical. If you hear the term test pit, that's the uh, vertical one pit going down. They're pretty cheap to do. Um, you can put one person on it, and you can put samples all across the site, and you say, okay, dig, dig a test pit, and they'll go down one meter square or two meter square and just go down as deep as they can. That's vertical excavation. It's pretty cheap, pretty good sampling strategy. Horizontal is usually a secondary type of excavation when you already know this is where something is. You're not going to just plop down a horizontal excavation any old place because they're expensive and time consuming. So here we have a picture of what are called post molds or post holes. Um, post hole or post mold. I prefer pro post hole, but a lot of people call them post molds. Whatever you want to do is fine. Um, and because they've excavated, you can see here they've taken out that layer. You can see the position of these large posts that probably held up some sort of structure. So it's very likely that you wouldn't have gotten that information if you put down just one test pit because you wouldn't have that spatial information. And you will get uh, chronological information out of horizontal ex excavations, but it's a lot slower in coming. Um, let's see. So we have a couple different excavation methods. Um, open air excavations are large, kind of expansive, um, done with the layers in mind, where you're taking out one layer and you'll take it across the whole site or the whole area that you're excavating. You'll take that one layer off the whole way. That would be an open excavation. Let's see, I have a really good um, picture of, boop. So this is a place where I used to work uh, called Silchester. It's a small site. Um, it's a Roman town that doesn't have a, a new town on top of it. So uh, it's in England. This is the one I was talking about where we stayed out in the in the tents, not much to do. So here's the excavation. This is an open air excavation, right? So you can see just huge open expanse, um, and they're taking off one layer at a time. So that's open air excavation. Nope, there we go. But what is much more common, especially nowadays, open air excavations are a little uh, often used. They're an older way of doing it. The newer more common way to do it is called grid excavation. And this is where you create very regimented grids. You put the grid over the site, and then you excavate one block at a time. Uh, or you don't you know, chase one layer or strat across the whole site. You'll go in that one pit all the way down. Um, it can create you know, these really, this is an example of an unstable soil. So they stepped it in so that they wouldn't get you know, 
collapsed in on. You can see water in the bottom, so it's pretty unstable. Um, here's what's called a trench, or it's a series of pits dug in a straight line through a mound to bisect it. So what this looks like from above, and it's one of the more common ways to get the information, the uh, chronological information out of a pit, so if we're, or a mound. If we're looking at a mound from the bird's eye view, a trench would go straight across. And then when you draw it, you know, now looking from the side, you're going to see all this stratigraphy of that mound, which is probably a couple other smaller mounds inside of it. But you would see that in that cross section. So this is from the side view, profile view, and this is from the uh, plan view or from the bird's eye view. And if you don't have the money to do a trench all the way through there, or if it's a sensitive sort of mound and you don't want to do something as destructive as a trench across the whole thing, you might just do test units at strategic locations. And, get, and you can get a lot of the same information. Oop, that's what's happening in this picture here. So grid excavations are pretty common today. Um, these, uh, what you see here, this in the middle, this is called a bulk, B-A-U-L-K. A bulk is not only there to preserve the stratigraphy, which is what it does. So one reason that you have a bulk is that so when you dig down this whole pit and eventually you take out all the pits and you leave a couple bulks up, you can see, you can preserve that stratigraphy even though you've already drawn it and you photographed it. Um, leaving a bulk preserves, excuse me, that stratigraphy. Um, bulks are, all, are also somewhat, uh, they can serve as a safety, uh, safety feature. Mm -hmm. Uh, using not using bulks is a little more modern. I'll show you actually um, a video really briefly, where here is excavated down to the bedrock. The bedrock isn't very far below, and then this one is not excavated. And so what I've done, basically, so instead of using bulks, when you put your grid system down, if you're using bulks, you leave like big chunks like this, and then you dig. You dig between them. You dig that out. What I decided to do um, was to not leave bulks. I wanted to excavate everything, but I still wanted to have uh, good access to my stratigraphy. So I put a grid over the structure, which was a small house we were going to build, or a small house um, from about a thousand years ago, and we excavated every other one like this until we had half of it excavated. And then if you notice, I've got a whole bunch of bisecting. If I drew the profile, right, so these, all the dark ones are excavated. These are one by one meter units. If you look on the side here, you know, this is a bird's eye view, but if you're drawing the profile, I have that whole profile. And then when I draw this profile, all I have to do is flip them, and then I can make a giant profile that goes across this whole thing. So I, I preserve that entire profile, and I can draw it, and then I can do another one here and another one there. So I have, have you ever seen those um, really cool visualizations where they took a, it's usually a dead prisoner, and they freeze their body in some sort of gel, and then they take a picture from the top, they slice off like a millimeter and take another picture and slice off a millimeter, and they go down through the whole body, and they just section and you can see like every little bit of the body as they go through. Really neat. That's kind of what um, 
I did here with section, section, section. So you can look all the way through and you can, it completely records all aspects of this building and all the stratigraphy. And then once I had it all recorded, so I had all of these drawn and I had a complete record of all the stratigraphy, then we excavated the rest of it and it became at the end a, what had started out as individual vertical excavations opened up and connected and became a uh, horizontal excavation. And then we were able to look at the whole entire house. Let's see if we can see that at the end here. Did I take a whole picture from far away? Not really. Burp. I'm not helpful at all, am I? Okay. Anyway, so, you know, there's another completely blurry video for you. Hooray. Um, all right. So, it's not just go ahead and start digging. We have to take pretty meticulous and slow notes. One of the, it's really the slowest thing we actually do is excavation. Uh, the, the, the notes taking, which is vital, really is one of the more time consuming things. Digging a unit or digging a level is pretty quick. It's just the uh, recording the notes, depending on how complex of an issue you're dealing with, um, can take quite a lot of time. So we use a number of forms. Since we're writing the same information over and over, we use forms to standardize what we're recording. And also, because there's a lot of information that we record, because I haven't mentioned this before, but um, unlike remote sensing, where we're kind of taking an image or um, using radar or sonar to measure what's there, with excavation, you get one shot at it because it's destructive, unlike remote sensing, which is passive. This is destructive. When I excavate that house, that house is gone forever. So even if I don't think it's important information right now, I have to write it down because what's not important to me might be important to people later on. And I'm sure that, you know, this always happens. We fault those who came, you know, a century before us and saying, oh, if only they had done modern excavation methods and kept good notes, we could, you know, know so much more about this site. And even though I used, you know, state of the art, whatever, um, rec recording, it's still never going to be enough in a hundred years, right? So uh, we use really complicated forms. I don't know if they're complicated, but they're thorough. Uh, they give us along the top, and this is pretty common among um, excavation forms, we get um, location information. So this gives us our provenience. In my situation, the operation was the actual unit, uh, the excavation place, and then um, these denoted which square. It gets you all the way down to the square and the level in the square that you're dealing with. You have to list the excavators, so if you, I have a question, you have to come back. Um, the dates, and all of these, it seems like kind of redundant information because say we excavate a, a level and we pull a whole bunch of pottery out of it, we write that on the bags too. We write the date and the operation unit level lot, all of those things. We could write them all down and it seems redundant, but number one, bags get ripped, um, writing comes off the bags, um, tags get lost. It's important to have the same things recorded in a couple different places. And every night when I came home from the field, I scanned all of the forms. So in case, as has happened, uh, so when I was in England, uh, we were working one day, and uh, all of a sudden, a, um, 
a freak storm a rain cloud came by and just like ruined everybody's paperwork and we lost a whole half day's work. Uh, another time, uh, when I wasn't there, but the year before, they actually had a tornado come through, like a dust devil, not like a real full-on tornado, but a dust devil, and it went right through and picked up everyone's forms that weren't on their clipboards, so they lost a whole bunch of forms. So that's why you always, I always scan my stuff every night, and yada, 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 yada. You have to be redundant. Um, I would then burn every, at the end of every week, I would burn uh, data CDs, and I would bring them into town and uh, leave them with a friend. So if my thatched hut with one electrical outlet burned down and my computer burned to bits, I would at least still have all my data, right? So being redundant and um, kind of paranoid about one's data is pretty common or should be really common among archaeologists. Yeah, there's either archaeologists who are super careful about these things or there's archaeologists who have lost a lot of data. There's not too many that are neither of those categories. Um, so I talked about operation unit level a lot. Most archaeologists and most sites operate under a hierarchical system where you have different designations that get increasingly exact or increasingly um, precise so that you can um, note exactly where a certain piece of pottery came from. Oh, since I just mentioned it, does anyone know the difference between accuracy and precision? An important kind of distinction in archaeology and other sciencey fields. Uh huh. Go ahead. Uh huh. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty good and pretty close to what I was going to say. So if you think about a bullseye and say you're shooting a bow and arrow, if you're accurate, you're going to be close to the bullseye. If you're precise, all of your attempts or your measurements or whatever are going to be very um, close to one another. So, or at least um, well grouped, right? So here, this first group of arrow shots is accurate because it's close to the mark, but it's not very precise because they're kind of all over the, around, you know, in the, in the eight ring. Whereas this person over here is very precise. They're able to very, in a very, you know, uh, fine way, get their arrows in the same spot every time, they're just not very accurate because they're way out here in the, what, six ring or something like that, right? So they're not very accurate, but they're very precise. So they're two different things. You'd like to be accurate and precise, ideally, but um, just an important uh, point of distinction here. I like to just mention it at least once during the semester because accuracy and precision are not the same thing, and I see them used interchangeably. So um, your tools often, your measuring, um, your measuring devices have a level of precision where we can only get to you know, one-tenth of a millimeter or one millimeter. That's your precision. And then your accuracy has to do with more how you use it and how close you get to the truth or whatever we're agreeing on for objective reality nowadays. OK. Um, so, I already, so I mentioned the hierarchical nature of operation unit level lot which isn't the same thing everyone else uses, but most people have some sort of hierarchical system. There's also something called point plotting. You'll also see it incorrectly refers to as piece plotting, and that's a bit of an archaeology joke, because piece plotting is perfectly valid, but there's, most people don't use them interchangeably because they learned one way and they stick by it and think the other people are wrong. It's stupid ego stuff. Point or piece plotting, I call it point plotting, but whatever. 
Point plotting is the way that we measure the exact provenience. Remember, the provenience is the location of an item in three dimensions. Um, and the way we do that is if we're looking bird's eye view at an excavation unit, for example. I said that everything on the site is georeferenced usually. And the way we usually do that is by flagging the southwest corner. And why the southwest corner? Because the, we always do the southwest corner. Probably because it has to do with, you know, in math where we have the, axis, the uh, x and y axis. And here at the center is the origin. And then, you know, this is positive and this is positive. So that's probably why we use the southwest corner. But it doesn't really matter why. Just remember the southwest corner of each unit is usually georeferenced. So I would know that it is just like um, on, what's the word, battleship or whatever. You have a system of grids over the site. And they usually put the center of the site at, say, 1,000 east and 1,000 north just to give yourself an extra kilometer. And so wherever this square is, we're going to know what that southwest corner is. So I'm just making something up. So we'll say 1,257.3 and 1,338.4. I'm completely making these up. East and north. So that's that exact location in reference to the site grid. Then if we find a really important artifact or something that we think we need to know the exact location of, um, since this is north and this is uh, east, excuse me, sorry, this is, this is the, north, uh, the north measurement and the east measurement, we can just take a tape measure, and if it's here, you can take a tape measure out, and that distance is going to give you your east, and then your measurement up is going to give you the north. And I'm not saying this so you can like recreate this or anything on the exam, it's mostly just so you know how we're getting when you see uh, very exact coordinates for things, we know because we keep very exact grids uh, over these sites. So that's two dimensions, your x and your y, or sorry, your east and your north. And then we also have the z, or the height. And the way we do this, now imagine I'm really cool at like computer simulation and drawing, and I turn this whole thing like this. And now we're looking at the pit from the side. Here's the surface. And here's that southwest corner. And it's got its little flag with these coordinates here. Um, we'll also get the elevation, and we use the total station to get that elevation. And then what we do, on this stake, we'll tie a string, and we'll stretch it across with a masonry line level. If anyone's ever built a wall out of masonry, uh, you'll see these line levels. It's basically a small capsule with a spirit level or a bubble level in it, and we attach that to the line. And then we stretch it flat, and we use the level to make sure it's flat. And we know the absolute elevation of that because we've mapped it in with the total station. So this might be 32.57 meters above sea level. And then we can measure down if our artifact here is right there. We can use another tape measure and measure down and say, oh, that's 50 centimeters on the button. Then we subtract 57. And then we know that it's 32. Uh, zero 0.07 meters above sea level. So we have the exact freaking location. Um, again, we don't always need to have this level of precision. Uh -huh. um, but we don't know. In the future, that information might be important. And again, because we're excavating it and it's gone forever, it's incumbent on us 
to record everything as absolutely expansively as we can. And that's one of the reasons why we're kind of moving towards away from what it was in the early half of the 1900s, where excavation was much more common, I'd say, and people really pushed to do a lot of excavation. Today, people really push not to do excavation. It's expensive. Um, there's a lot more rules about it in every country you work in. And once it's gone, it's gone. So if we can leave it there for someone else later in the future with better means, unless it's a unique opportunity, we'll usually leave it, or we'd like to leave it. Uh, the other types of uh, recording are the plan and profile drawings, which you've seen before. Remember, plan is the view from above, and the profile is from the side. So here we have, as if, you know, if we wanted to, we could take scissors and cut these out and fold it up, and you'd have a 3D model of what this unit used to look like. See the vegetation on the bottom. Um, and you can see, ah, look at me in my example. So for example, 24 meters above sea level, or sorry, 34.5 meters above sea level, this line right here. That was measured in on the southwest corner with the total station, and then this line went all the way around the unit so we could measure below it. And then the southwest corner, this is not only this is a pretty long number, 227007 uh, north and 329495 east. That is called UTM, Universal Transverse Mercator UTM. It's the it's the equivalent of latitude and longitude. So most of us have an idea of latitude and longitude. We know that we live at some latitude and longitude and then there's minutes and seconds and and then segments of seconds. However, if I were to ask you, like, how far away is the other end of the building in degrees latitude or, or uh, longitude, we'd have no, like, you can't, how do you visualize that? So what people did with Universe Traverse Mercator, here's the Earth, and with its longitude and latitude, whatever, they basically split it up because it's a round circle, you can't just put a grid over it because it wouldn't fit right. So they made overlapping squares that are pretty well square for all intents and purposes. And each one of these is labeled a segment or a, a quadrant. And there's different quadrants all over the world. And then within that, at the, this extreme southwest corner, this is zero. Zero. Zero meters north and zero meters east. And then every meter you go east and every meter you go north is measured. And then that's what I'm using at my site. So if you know what grid that is, you could go to Google Earth, type in this number, and it would bring you right to the southwest corner of this excavation unit. So anybody in the world can go right there, which is kind of neat. Um, and the nice thing about the UTM is it's in meters. So even though I don't know how many degrees latitude that is over there, that wall, I know if I'm at, I don't know, 2270.07, that's four, eh, four meters away, and it's north. I don't know which direction it's north. Let's say that's north. Then I can say, oh, I'm at 2270.11, right? So you can actually like do it in your head, which is kind of nice, and you can refer to it. So it's a much more user-friendly sort of situation, um, system.
UTM, Universe Transverse Mercator. I don't know why I got out of that. Okay. So, after we've done all that excavation and we've recorded everything, we end up with artifacts and bags. Um, and bags within bags. So you make a bag for each type of artifact found in each unit level, in each level. And then you put all those bags from one level together in a big bag and you put it all together. Then you say, this is everything, the assemblage from this one level, right? So the way we get those artifacts out, because we're usually digging with shovels, little known fact, um, most people think that the, um, the trowel is the predominant uh, archaeological tool. In my experience, people use shovels as much, if not more, than trowels. Uh, in either way, in either case, uh, usually we fill up a bucket, or sometimes a wheelbarrow, but usually a bucket, and then we bring that bucket or wheelbarrow over to a screen. And there are different types of screens, and it's kind of a monotonous um, job. It's basically just like you played with on the beach when you were a kid. Um, where you had the sieve, where you put the sand in, and you sand, sand, sieved it out, and you found bigger rocks. That's exactly what we did, except uh, we're looking for flakes of stone tools. We're looking for pottery. We're looking for unusual rocks. We're looking for stone tools, uh, which I mentioned, fragments of bone, basically anything that could be considered an artifact we're looking for. And sometimes we're even looking for ecofacts or uh, natural things that might have been used by humans. So there's different types of screens. There's the shaker screens. Um, here we have somebody doing what's called a shovel toss, which is where you take a load of soil and you can toss it into something. Archaeologists get actually pretty good at shovel toss, which is uh, sometimes you'll have your bucket or your wheelbarrow up you know, this high above you, and you take a shovel full, and you'll whoop, and you throw it all, and it goes right in. It's kind of a fun skill to learn. Um, so sometimes they'll screen directly. Sometimes they're on little caster wheels. There's these that break your back. And then there's wet screening. So most of these, the soil is dry and friable or it comes apart. And so you can just screen it right through and shake it and then look through the screen and dump it out uh, when you don't find anything. This is wet screening where we fill the bucket because we were digging in clay. And the clay was wet and it was all stuck together. So basically we had to put the big pile of, of sediment in there, and then we used these scoops to scoop water over it. It would wash away the soil um, and the sediment and leave the artifacts. Screening. And then all those artifacts get bagged, like I said. Each level gets bagged together. Uh, each artifact type gets bagged together, and then they all get put together in one big bag for that level and that unit, so we know exactly where all those artifacts come from. Um, and then we bring them back to be cleaned. Cleaning is one of the most monotonous, is that the right word? Yes, um, monotonous jobs. Uh, usually it's pottery that we're cleaning, that, at least in my neck of the woods in my area, the pottery is 90% of what we're cleaning. And uh, often we hire local kids to sit and use toothbrushes, used to, not our current toothbrushes, uh, to scrub the dirt off of pottery after which uh, we usually hire the slightly older kids, and they will write. Remember how I said operation unit level lot? Sorry, uh, operation yeah, unit level lot. They would, uh, they would write that right on the pottery with indelible marker in small handwriting, and so the older kids would usually do that, and then they label everything in all the bags. 
with their proper location. Because then, when you take all the pottery out and you're analyzing it and putting it into different functional categories and stylistic categories, you don't have to keep them specialized in their own bags. You have their provenience information on them right there. So it's a considerable amount of time. And you say, well, why do you hire local kids? We hire local kids. Not everyone does. Sometimes we use undergrads, and that's their. It's, it really turns people. <laughs> can be a way to turn people off archaeology, I guess, is to put them on permanent cleaning duty. I've seen it used as punishment. Anyway, we usually uh, hire local kids to do this because it. You know, these kids are going to grow up, and they're going to be the stakeholders in this area. They're going to be the ones who are in charge of keeping that property or that um, that location protected. And so if they have an idea of what's there, if they have an idea of some sort of ownership of the research project, as kids, as they grow up, they're going to, it kind of seeds, sows the seeds for good relationships with archaeologists later on. And not to mention the fact that most of these places we live are pretty isolated. And these kids, it's not like they can like get a paper route. Not that, how many of you had a paper route, right? Nobody has paper routes anymore. Um, where do kids work nowadays? Do they work at McDonald's anymore, or is that movie theater? Right there, they don't have opportunities like that for um, you know earning earning a little bit of uh, pocket money and things like that. So uh, it's and it's cool because sometimes now once we've been at a project for a while, we have people who started out as kids, and now they're working with us in the field and actually excavating. And it's uh, kind of comes not quite full circle, but certainly. Uh, useful uh, loop uh, email. I think this one had um, we had doop, doop, doop. So here we have uh, cleaning, and most days we get into out to work really early in the morning because it gets really hot. So, so these are. Uh, she's a, the one who answered. She's a She runs a fairly large archaeological company um, in Cincinnati, uh, and the rest of them are uh, former undergrads uh, from Canada who came to work with me one year. And so, usually, what we would often what we'd do is in the afternoon or on a rain day, we would sit and we would scrub what we had picked up that day. We didn't have as much pottery this year, so we didn't have uh, local kids working because we were able to do it in a couple hours each night, but usually we pop on some downloaded movies or something and sit and scrub pottery. It's a lot of busy work, but it just has to be done. So, okay. So that is that ad nauseum. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.